We return once more to a consideration of the words that are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now we are considering this passage, and particularly at the moment, the various manifestations and operations of the working of these evil powers against whom the apostle is warning these Ephesians. We are considering the activities of these powers, and I've suggested that a convenient classification is something like this. We've already looked at their general activities, through saying magic, things like that. Then we've looked at more particular activities. Ghosts, poltergeists, haunted houses, so on. Then we came to another important section, which I described as a kind of voluntary submission to the activities of these powers. And there we were considering mainly what is commonly called spiritualism, but which should be called, of course, spiritism. Now we come on from that to the next logical section, which is involuntary submission to the powers of these evil forces by which we are surrounded. Now the last spiritualism was a, a kind of voluntary submission, people seeking this, seeking knowledge and comfort and power and so on from evil spirits. But we're looking now at those who uh, don't do this voluntary, voluntarily, but uh, rather find themselves subjected to the influence of these terrible and terrifying powers. And this is what is commonly known as devil possession. Devil possession. Now, the first thing we have to do is to try to be clear in our minds as to what it means. And I think the term is a very good one. It means that the person is actually being possessed by or controlled by somebody else, something else, some other power. That is the, the exact condition. The person is possessed for the time being, as it were, owned by this other person, guided by this other power, this spirit, controlled by. The person no longer is in control of himself or herself but has been mastered, taken hold of, possessed by this unseen spiritual power. Well, now, that is the essence of this matter, that the person is controlled. And so, when we come to manifestations, we shall find that one of the most characteristic of them is that the personality of this person who is devil-possessed seems to have been temporarily entirely changed. Well, the result of this is this possession by this evil spirit. 
is that uh, this uh, poor possessed person begins to act in a strange or unusual manner. Or it may well be the case that uh, he is no longer able to function in his normal manner and is not able to use some of his faculties as he has hitherto been using them and as a normal person does use them. In other words, you will find in these accounts of this condition violence at times being manifested. Take that case of the men of Gadara, so-called. Uh, the violence of the men and his cutting of himself with stones and so on and dwelling amongst the tombs. All this is evidence of this abnormal kind of behavior to which I am referring. And then you find, you remember the case of the boy whom our Lord found with his father at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration. We read of that boy that frequently he was thrown into the fire and burned, thrown at other times into water and so on. Now, these are all part of this manifestation of this control by this evil spirit and power. As I say, at one moment causing this person to do unusual and strange and abnormal things, but then at times depriving the person of the normal use of faculties. For instance, you read of that man in Luke 11 with a dumb spirit. He couldn't speak. And there's sometimes deafness, sometimes blindness. These are the various ways in which uh, this uh, spirit manifests himself and his control uh, through the poor possessed person. Not only that, there is another feature uh, which to me is very important, and that is that clearly these spirits are able to give people unusual knowledge and information. It's a very striking thing in the New Testament how these devil-possessed persons were able to recognize our Lord. The Pharisees and scribes and Sadducees didn't, but these people did. They drew near to him and they made their statements, Thou art the Christ, Thou art Jesus, the Son of God, and so on. And like that girl with the spirit of divination, she had the power to recognize the unusual quality of Paul and Silas. She said, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who declare unto us the way of salvation. Now, she had that knowledge. She had that insight into their character and into their persons. And this is a very striking and a very notable and, uh, as I want to show you, a very important aspect of this whole subject. You will find that in these cases sometimes a very ignorant, illiterate person is found speaking in Greek or in Latin or in some other language which such a person has not only never learned but could probably not learn. But nevertheless, under this influence, you can literally hear them speaking in almost perfect Latin or Greek or something of that kind. In other words, they are given a knowledge and a power and an information and a capacity entirely above themselves. Well, now then, there uh, is a, a general definition as to what we mean when we talk about devil possession. But let me raise another question. Why are we considering this? Is there anybody, I wonder, in this congregation who feels that this is rather a useless procedure, that it's just a kind of academic subject, and that, well, it's got nothing to say to us and to our experience, that it seems very remote and 
very theoretical. Well, lest there should be some such person present, let me give you some reasons why it is very important for us to be considering it. One reason, of course, which is sufficient in and of itself, is this, that it's a part of the exposition of the verses we're looking at. The Apostle Paul felt this subject was so important that here he puts it at the very end of his epistle and he puts it with great emphasis. And anything that is in the scripture is important for us. If you feel, my friend, that any part of the scripture has got nothing to say to you, well, that just means there's something seriously wrong with you. If you pick and choose in the scriptures and only read your favorite passages because you think they help you, well, then you're not only a babe, you're an infant. And indeed, one might even query as to whether you're born at all. The scripture, the whole of the scripture, is for us. And we are to know it and to study it and to understand it as best we can. But, let me go beyond it. I venture to suggest that nobody really can read the Gospels, the four Gospels particularly, in an intelligent manner who doesn't know something about this. Because it's one of the most striking and prominent features of the earthly life and ministry of our blessed Lord and Savior. How can you possibly read your Gospels intelligently if you have no idea as to what this means? There, in and of itself, is a reason. I believe that many sections of the church are observing today as what they call Bible Sunday. Well, I'm not disposed to criticize that. I think they mean by that that we should all bear in mind the work of the British and Foreign Bible Society and similar societies. But I don't like the term. Every Sunday is Bible Sunday. But if you do believe in studying the Bible, as people will be emphasizing today, well, here is a very vital subject in the Bible. It's not only in the Gospels, it's in the Old Testament. And as we've seen in one illustration, and there are others, it's to be found in the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Very well, you can't really understand the background, the real meaning of much of the Scripture, if you don't know about this. But then in addition to that, if you've ever troubled to read uh, the history, the secular history of this country or any other country, you will have found that the Middle Ages knew a great deal about this subject. And uh, it had great prominence then and was a very real problem. So if you're interested intelligently in secular history, you're bound to know something about this. And especially if you're interested in the history of the church. Some of the most terrible abuses of the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages came in directly as the result of this kind of thing. But, to be more up to date, this is a problem today in many a mission field, in many parts of the world, where people are in a backward primitive condition and are still under the domination of paganism, there is a great deal of this very thing being manifested at the present time. And therefore, if we are interested in missionary work, and if we are proposing some of us perhaps to go in for it, or if we are trying to pray intelligently for our friends who are there, and if we want to help them and to guide them, well, the more we know about this subject, the more we shall be able to help them. But coming still nearer home, there is, as I was saying last Sunday, an evident, obvious new interest in spiritism. And as that is even coming into the Christian church, well, then this becomes a very urgent matter. Because it's quite clear to me that many of the mediums, so-called, become devil-possessed. Having submitted themselves voluntarily to these other powers so frequently, they get into a state in which they can't keep themselves from them, and they become subject to them and possessed by them. So that is one of the most dangerous aspects 
of Spiritism as a whole, that uh, it leads to this very condition. Then another reason is this. There are certain types of Christianity and of religion which uh, teach people to abandon themselves and their own self-control and which indeed work them up deliberately into a kind of excitement in which they thus do abandon themselves and lose themselves. And it seems to me that that kind of teaching opens the door directly to this whole question of devil possession. The moment you thus surrender your understanding and discrimination and abandon yourselves and your higher controls, you are at any rate exposing yourself very dangerously to this very kind of thing about which we are concerned. But if we had no other reason, my next reason would be sufficient in and of itself to consider this. The whole question of our Lord's person is involved here. Because, as I say, you can't read your four Gospels without seeing the prominence of this subject and our Lord so constantly dealing with these cases and exercising the devils out of them and sending out his disciples with power to preach and to cast out devils. Now, there are many people who reading all that find, of course, an immediate problem. They don't believe in devils. They don't believe in angels. They don't really believe in the Holy Spirit. Well, then they're in difficulties about our Lord's person. He evidently did believe in these evil spirits and in devil possession. Oh, they say it's quite simple. He, after all, was just a child of his age. He was really only a man. And he suffered from the limitations of knowledge that were characteristic of that time. We, of course, in the 20th century, we know so much more. But then everybody was so ignorant and so was he. He didn't know. He was limited in his knowledge and in his understanding. And like other people, he wrongly and falsely believed in these devils and evil spirits. There are many who are saying that in the name of Christ and in the name of the church. Uh, others uh, don't uh, venture to go as far as that, but what they say is this. Oh, of course they say, our Lord being God as well as men, he did know. But he uh, just uh, accommodated himself to the ignorance of the people. He didn't enlighten them. He didn't correct them. He didn't teach them. It wasn't a part of his purpose. He allowed them to go on believing something that wasn't true, and uh, when he dealt with these cases, uh, which he, he dealt with uh, as a modern psychologist uh, does, only that his technique was slightly different, uh, he allowed people to believe that he really had got authority to exercise and to drive out devils. In other words, the, the theory is, this accommodation theory is, that our Lord deliberately allowed people to believe a lie and almost encouraged them to do so. Their view of him is that he was just a great natural psychologist who anticipated much of what is being known and done at the present time. Now, you'll find this in books written by people who claim to be Christians, some of them ministers in the Christian church. And... Uh, so, you see, the whole question of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is involved. It is an essential part of our attitude towards him and as to who he was and what he was doing. Well, now then, there are some reasons for considering it. Then that brings me to the next matter, which is this. Is this a fact or isn't it? 
Is there or is there not such a thing as devil possession? Now, I've been reminding you that there are many people today, in fact, the vast majority in the church, unfortunately, as well as outside, who don't believe in this at all. There are some of them who don't believe in it because they don't believe in the spiritual realm at all. And therefore, they're perfectly logical and perfectly consistent. There are people who don't believe in God. Well, I don't expect them to believe in devil possession. There are people who don't believe in angels. There are people who don't believe in the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in the spiritual realm at all. Well, of course, if you don't believe in the spiritual realm at all, you can't possibly be expected to believe in evil spirits. I don't waste your time with people like that. The problem to discuss with them is not demon possession or devil possession. The problem to discuss with them is the being of God and the whole realm of the spiritual. And don't waste your breath in discussing the lesser, lesser matter with them. But there are others, and this is more serious for us, who, while they do believe in God and in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the person of the Holy Spirit and in the spiritual realm, see, they really can't believe this. And their reason is that they think that all this, which is here attributed to devil possession, can be very easily and simply and scientifically explained in more or less medical terms. And this is the kind of thing that is said most frequently. They say, surely, these cases that are described in the scriptures as devil possession are, most of them, at any rate, simply diseases. Diseases were not then recognized as they are now. And there was a tendency, they go on to say, amongst those primitive people to attribute everything to evil, unseen forces and powers and factors, as is still being done by certain benighted people at the present time. And therefore, they say, surely now we no longer need to believe that, and it's no denial of the essential faith and of the teaching of the scriptures to say that these are not cases of devil possession, but that they are simply straightforward diseases. Now, what is our reply to that? Well, here are some of the answers. First and foremost, the Bible itself describes these cases definitely specifically as devil possession. Nobody can get away from that. As I've said already, our Lord himself clearly believed in it and he taught it. So, you see, immediately we are up against our old problem again of the authority of the scriptures. Of course, if you take up the position that with your modern knowledge and the advance of knowledge and your understanding of science that you can look down upon the Bible and correct it and show where it's defective, well, there's no more to be said. But then we're not discussing at that point, you see, devil possession. We're discussing the authority of the scriptures. But if you accept the authorities of the scriptures, if you believe that the scriptures are divinely inspired and given by God the Holy Spirit, that the Old Testament prophecies came not from the mind of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit, and that if you believe the same about these authors of the New Testament books, as it seems to me you must because they claim that for themselves, well then, you cannot lightly brush this aside because it teaches plainly devil possession. But I've got a second argument following that which is still more striking to me. The Bible, you know, is not quite as ignorant as the modern man sometimes tends to believe. The trouble with this modern man is that he doesn't know much about his Bible. He's always reading something else. And he's reading books about the Bible. If he only read the Bible, 
Well, some of his arguments would immediately have to be abandoned. The very striking thing is this, that the Bible itself draws a distinction between diseases and devil possession. Now, if the Bible described every form of affliction as devil possession, there might be something in this argument. But the Bible draws a very sharp distinction between diseases, which it recognizes as diseases, and devil possession. Let me give you an example. Matthew 4, 24. And they brought unto him all sick people that were taken with divers diseases and torments, and those which were possessed with devils, and those which were lunatic, and those that had the palsy, and he healed them. Now, that would be quite good in a medical textbook, wouldn't it? Quite clinical, isn't it? But the modern man says these people were ignorant. They confused between diseases and devil possession. But the Bible draws a very clear and scientific distinction between diseases, devil possession, and lunacy. There's no confusion here. They recognized these different categories. And they were well aware of these differences and distinctions. The Bible is not as ignorant as people think. Well, let me give you the same kind of quotation from Luke, who himself happened to be a doctor. Luke 4, 40 and, 40 and 41. This is what he says. When the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with diverse diseases brought them unto him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And devils also came out of many, say, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he, rebuking them, suffered them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. Now there, Luke, again, you see, with his very special knowledge, draws a sharp distinction between diseases and sickness on the one hand and devil possession on the other hand. A very important bit of evidence. But let me go on and add to that. And to me this is a very important point. The picture presented by these cases of devil possession, and this is obviously the basis of the distinction drawn in the two quotations I've just given, the picture presented by these cases never conforms to a definite clinical pattern of known disease. That, to me, is a very vital argument. Here is a man suffering from a disease, and he's got, if you like, a complex of symptoms. There is a definite clinical entity or picture. Well, then, look at the case of a devil possession. And what I'm saying is this, that a case of devil possession can never be put into one or the other of these clinical pictures. That is one of the diagnostic points, if you like, the way to differentiate. There is always this failure to conform to any known pattern of symptoms or of appearances or of signs. In addition to that, there are certain unusual symptoms which are very characteristic of this devil possession which you do not find in clinical entities as diseases. What am I referring to? Well, I'm referring to these paroxysms. This foaming at the mouth that you read of in the case of the boy at the foot of the Mount of Transfiguration. The violence. Take the men of Gadara. Take this boy again. Throwing himself into the water. Throwing himself into the fire. Cutting themselves with stones. And so on. Now, that is a very important point. Forgive me, I'm going into details because I know many people are troubled by this. Uh, 
There are those who wouldn't hesitate to say that the boy of Gadara, for instance, was an obvious epileptic. To which my reply is that he's very obviously not an epileptic, for the reasons that I've been giving. That uh, his whole behavior doesn't fit into epilepsy. Epilepsy is a very well-recognized clinical entity. I can't fit this boy into that. There is this additional violence, this going beyond epilepsy, which seems to me to put it into an entirely different category. So we should never refer to him as the epileptic boy. But then add to that this, that in these cases, there is always this extraordinary element of another personality. Now, when a person is sick, his personality isn't changed. Even if it's lunacy, that isn't true. But here, the striking thing, the big thing is this other personality, this possession, this complete change, as it were, in the personality. A very important point. Another important one is this, that in these cases, there is always this kind of debased element, this element of uncleanness. You don't get that in disease, but you always get it in devil possession. There's something debased, unhealthy, unclean about it all. And finally, and again a very important point, the way in, this, in which these cases are cured has a great deal to tell us. How are they cured? Well, the most effective way of curing these cases is by prayer. Prayer, urgent and intense prayer, that they may be delivered. And it's often happened. Now, if you're interested in reading about this kind of thing, take uh, of that book about Pastor Xi of China, that book which was republished in an abridged form a few years ago by the China Inland Mission, Pastor Xi of China. There you've got it in a popular form, without too many technicalities. Read about these cases and how they were dealt with by Pastor Xi and his fellow workers. And there are other books that deal with this, but that is one of the best and one of the most popular that I'm familiar with. Now, the way of cure, I say, is partly by prayer, but then there is this exercising, this ability to drive out these evil spirits. It may be that this is a subject that we've neglected, not only on the mission field, but perhaps in this country of ours as well. But there is clearly power available here to those who are spiritual to cast out these devils. But thirdly, and perhaps most interesting of all to me is this, that sometimes the way in which this condition is healed and dealt with best of all is by the poor devil-possessed person becoming a Christian. Certainly in my own experience, one of the most striking cases of devil possession I ever saw was healed in this way, by the poor person becoming a Christian. And once she'd become a Christian, she was entirely delivered. You say, how do you know this was a case of devil possession? Well, I mustn't weary you with the details, but I could illustrate the point I've been making about this clinical entity perfectly well. Here was a person who was supposed to be paralyzed, and many doctors had fallen into the trap of thinking that it was an organic disease, but they couldn't say which one it was. None of them could fit it into any known disease, but they said it must be, because uh, she can't walk. Well, it fell to my lot to see this person partly medically and partly ministerially. And what struck me immediately was that this was no case of organic disease at all, but that this was clearly a case of devil possession. How did I know that? Well, one of the reasons was this, that when I approached the bed of that person with her doctor and her own minister, 
the person who was supposed to be paralyzed and hadn't been able to walk for eight years began to go into the most violent movements of her arms and her legs and her head and continued it for ten minutes and the expression on her face is something that I shall never forget. But what happened to that poor girl was this, that as the result of the conversion of two of her sisters, one after another, with a good interval between, she began to attend a place of worship. And herself, she was carried there at first, herself was finally converted. Nothing was ever said about her paralysis, but it just disappeared, it went. Now, that is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. You see, this kind of thing can happen in Great Britain. Now, that is the kind of thing that I'm talking about. You see, this kind of thing can happen in Great Britain. These powers and forces are not confined to localities. You mustn't assume that because a country claims to be educated that this kind of thing cannot happen. It does happen. And these are some of the reasons which I have for saying that this is a definite fact. But then says somebody, what about hallucinations? What about hysteria? And my reply is still the same. This goes beyond either hallucinations or hysteria. This extraordinary knowledge that is given to these people, you can't explain that in terms of hallucinations or in terms of hysteria that a simple, ignorant girl may be able to recite Latin, who knows no Latin and has never studied Latin, has never heard it before. You've got to explain such things. There is something extra here. And then, of course, the final argument is this, surely. If you can explain all this in terms of mental states and conditions, hallucinations or hysteria or something like that, well then, what do you make of the case of the Gadarene swine? What happened to them? Can you transfer hysteria to swine? Ah, oh, but you say, I don't believe that very well. The problem that you are discussing is not demon possession, it's that you don't believe the scriptures. You don't believe the gospels. It's a different subject. If you believe the gospel, if you believe these records, and if you begin to say, I believe this and don't believe that, well, you're not believing them, but you're believing your own understanding. And how do you know what you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ himself at all? Because you, all you know is what you're told in these Gospels. And the Gospels are all careful to tell us that the devils were driven out of the man into the swine and that they ran madly, violently over that precipice and were drowned in the sea, about 2,000 of them. You can't explain that in terms of hallucination or hysteria or anything else. But come, let me turn to the positive. Surely today, in many ways, it ought to be easier to believe in this than it was at certain other times. What do you mean, Sir Simon? Well, I mean this. Have you ever heard of hypnotism? Of course you have. It's coming back again, isn't it? There's quite a move in this direction at the present time. What happens in hypnotism? Well, this is what happens. That one personality governs and controls another. The person hypnotized is entirely subject to the hypnotist. He takes possession. He can give commands to that person who's under the influence, and this person will move. He'll tell them, get up, and they get up. They don't wish to get up. They haven't voluntarily decided to get up. The one who's hypnotized them says, get up, and they get up, sit down, they sit down, sing, they may sing. You can make them do anything you like. Hypnotism. 
What's that? Well, hypnotism is one personality commanding and controlling and governing and guiding another. Mesmerism. What's that? Well, it's a similar sort of thing, only that they don't lose consciousness, as it were. But if mesmerism is a, is a definite fact, one of the most extraordinary instances of that I've read, ever read of was in the case of a man called Henry Drummond, one of the converts of D.L. Moody, and we used to go about a lot with D.L. Moody, and who was very popular in the Christian church at the end of the last century. Now, Drummond, Henry Drummond, was a man who had the power to mesmerize people, and he used to do it as a student before his conversion. And he used to entertain people by doing it. He could influence a man not only in his presence, but a man who was 50 miles away. But after his conversion, this became a terrible problem to Drummond. Why? Well, for this reason. That he had realized that often when speaking in meetings, he was having this effect upon people. It wasn't the gospel. It was his mesmeric power. And he had to struggle in order to deal with this and to get rid of it. You'll find the account in his biography by George Adam Smith. Now, but uh, you see, you see the importance of all this. There is no question. We are aware of this today. That one personality can command and control and direct another. Would you like to say that that, that that was not the explanation of Hitler's rise to power? It is the explanation, not to go further and to say that he was a devil-possessed man, which he may very well have been. I'm quite ready to believe it. Apparently, he used to go into these paroxysms and give these violent manifestations. But even if he didn't do that, was he not perhaps one of these people with this hypnotic, mesmeric power and capacity and personality? And there are others also. And this I am suggesting seriously to you is something that should be borne in mind in even mass evangelistic campaigns. This capacity and power of men who've been built up, you can see it whenever you like if you go to Rome and the Pope happens to be making a public appearance. It happens invariably. I've witnessed it there. All I'm saying is this, that here you see we have clear proof and demonstration that it is possible for a human personality to be entirely subjugated to another, governed and controlled against its will, and thus become the instrument of another personality. Very well, take that. Then add to that what we are told in the scriptures about the influence of angels. Take still more the influence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Not long ago, we were discussing together this verse, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be Filled with the Spirit. Submit yourself to the Spirit. Let him lead you and guide you and control you. And he does. He does lead and guide and control. Very well. Here is the inevitable logical deduction. If this happens in the realm of the Holy Spirit and of the good angels, the servants of God, why shouldn't it happen in the case of evil spirits? evil angels, and the devil himself. You see, that's where this teaching is so important. There are, says Paul, principalities and powers. There are these rulers of the darkness of this world. There are spiritual forces even in these high places. They're there at your cost. At all costs, says the apostle, remember this and realize this, that you may stand against them. 
And they can exercise this power. If you believe in the Holy Spirit, you must logically believe in the evil spirits. And they're there. That's why we call him Holy Spirit. Yes, these powers and forces are there. And they can indeed dominate a person and use him and rule over him and manipulate him, even as we are told in such extraordinary detail in the pages of the four Gospels. Very well. There is no question about this. But finally, I want to deal with another argument, and I leave it at this. All right, says somebody, but still you leave me with one difficulty, and that is that there does seem historically to have been an extraordinary periodicity in the manifestation of this phenomenon of devil possession. What they mean is this. Clearly, in the time of our Lord, the thing was rampant. So much so that certain of the Jews had become exorcists. That's how our Lord was able to turn that argument back, you remember, on the people who said that he was casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub. He said, if I'm doing it by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons do it? They were Jewish exorcists. It was a terrible problem then, as it is, as I say, at the present time in many countries. Well, now, then it was very rampant. After that, apparently, according to the history, it more or less entirely disappeared. Then it came back again in the Middle Ages, the dark Middle Ages, when the Church of Rome was dominating the whole of life. It came back in terrible power then. And then here's another interesting thing. There was a kind of recrudescence of it immediately at the time of the Reformation and immediately after. Now that's interesting. And you'll find something else. That whenever there is a great revival of religion, you generally get a recurrence of these phenomena. Whenever there is an unusual activity of the Holy Spirit, you get this manifestation of devil possession. Now then, the question asked is, how do you explain this? Surely it must be obvious. Whenever the Spirit of God is present in unusual power, the devil's kingdom is disturbed. Why? Well, because it sees the threat. Our Lord said, if I with the finger of God cast out devils, and that's what he was doing, the kingdom of God was coming with him. The kingdom of God has already come amongst you, he says. If I do it with the kingdom of God, with the finger of God, then the kingdom of God is present amongst you. And it was. And the evil kingdom realized this. And it was filled with terror. What did it do? Well, it manifested itself in an unusual activity. The presence of the Son of God created a stir in the realm of darkness, and it arose in self-defense in an attempt to defeat him. That's the background to your four Gospels. And it's a most significant and important bit of teaching. But then you will find this always, that as the result of such a revival, these powers are kept in abeyance, and as Christian teaching spreads, well, they almost entirely disappear. And you know, this is not only true of specific Christian teaching. As long as your secular teaching is ultimately based upon a background of Christianity and is moral and good and clean and uplifting, even education and civilization seem to be able to control these evil powers. You see, as those Jewish exorcists were doing it, they were not Christians. No, but they were believers in God. And that alone enabled them to do it. Now, let's be clear about this. There is obviously a great variety in these evil spirits. Some are weak, some are strong. Some are vile, some are terribly vile. Do you notice how our Lord puts it? This spirit is driven out, and he brings back with him seven other spirits even worse than himself. Now, there, there are gradations. 
There are some of these spirits that seem to be very weak. I wouldn't hesitate to assert that in one instance I was able myself by the mere exercise of willpower and authority to quell one such feeble, evil spirit tormenting a poor girl. But my point is that general education and teaching can do this, and it undoubtedly has had this effect during the last 100 years or so. But, and this is what's so important today, in an age of moral declension, in an age of godlessness, in an age of excesses, in an age when people no longer believe in God and begin to dabble with the unseen and to play with evil, invariably this phenomenon comes back. When their education becomes purely secular and denies the Bible entirely and denies God and becomes atheistical, then, though they are sophisticated and have a knowledge of a kind, it is not sufficient to keep these powers at bay. And so I am suggesting that in this evil, godless, immoral age in which we are living, which is arrogantly flouting itself, flouting the sanctities and standing arrogantly against God, and almost returning to what you had in the 18th century when there were devil worshippers here in London, in an age like this, there is the awful and terrible danger of a recurrence of devil possession, and especially as spiritism becomes more and more popular. Very well. What is our conclusion as the result of all this? Well, my conclusion is this. Thank God for the season of Advent. Thank God that we are in the time of the year when we think of the coming of the Son of God. Oh, the difference his coming has made. He came to deliver us, not only from the guilt and punishment of sin, but from the power of evil. He came to undo the works of the devil, says John in his first epistle in chapter 3. What a difference his coming has made. You know, one of these accounts of the healing of the men of Gadara has got a most interesting and significant statement. In Matthew's account of that, we read this. That when our Lord approached, when that man approached our Lord, the devils realized what was happening, and this is what they said to him. Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? They recognized him. They knew his superior power. They knew what he could do with them. They knew he was going to drive them out, and they said, Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? Thank God for that. What's it mean? It means this. That our Lord by his coming has not only dealt with these and controlled them and quelled them and delivered people, his people, from them. But there is a day coming, there is a time coming when they're all together with the devil at their head going to be finally destroyed. The principalities and powers the world rulers of this darkness, the spiritual forces in the heavenly places, and the devil, the prince of them all, are going to be cast to a lake of everlasting destruction and will finally be destroyed and have no more influence 
and no more power whatsoever. Art thou come to destroy us before the time? The time is coming. It is the time of our Lord's glorious return. And you and I, you are Christians, look forward to that. Thank God in the meantime, we can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. We can put on the whole armor of God. And let us use this liberty and the knowledge it has brought us to help others, to warn others, to open their eyes to the terrible dangers which are surrounding them. The time is coming. Amen.